0: So let's go to Romans chapter 16 um, as we kind of conclude this uh, series on the book of Romans. And we're going to be talking about being a part of God's uh, worldwide movement because God is always at work and He's always at work around the world. And He has called you and I to be a part of what it is that He is doing in the hearts and the lives of people around us. And so Paul began this book in Romans 1.16 Uh, He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. So Paul has spent 16 chapters unfolding the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it look like? Why is it necessary? How does it influence and impact our lives personally? And so if you put it in a nutshell, the gospel teaches us that there's only one race, the human race, There's only one problem, it's sin, and there's only one hope, and it's Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul is fleshing out in the book of Romans. And so as we come to chapter 16, sometimes it is a difficult chapter because all of a sudden Paul begins to list a lot of random names that we have never heard of. Uh, And so he starts in verse 1 I'm committed to you, our sister Phoebe. And so we know about Phoebe from the book of Acts, a servant of the church and Sinchira, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. And it is believed that perhaps she is the one who took the uh, writing of the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans, and took it to the church in Rome. So then he begins to list uh, uh, random names. It's almost like Paul's Twitter list, right? These are the people who are following him, or like the credits at the end of a movie, which nobody watches when you go to a movie. When the credits start to roll, everybody starts to get up and, and leave, unless you know that at the end of the credits, uh, there's going to be some bloopers they're going to show that, you know, they were not a part of the, the movie. You might stay and watch those. And so Paul begins to list off these names, but before we bypass those names, they show us some very unique and distinct things about the early church. Uh, We're not going to read through this long list, but it shows us that the early church was very diverse. For as you look at this list, there are Jewish names, there are Gentile names, there are names of people who lived in the Middle East, in Asia, and Europe. And so there was great racial diversity in the church at Rome. We also... Notice the distinction of class. In other words, there were people of great wealth. They were people who were middle class. They were people who were lower class. As you sift through this, this list that Paul gives to us, and so there is great diversity uh, in the, the classification of people in the church. And you get to verse 16 it says, Now greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, that just perked up the ears of all the single guys. At all the churches of Christ and send greetings. And so the emphasis here, to greet one another with a holy kiss, the emphasis there is not on the kiss, the emphasis is upon holy. Now, when they were greeting one another in this culture in such a way, you would kiss someone on the cheek, and it was a sign of equality and friendship. And what Paul was saying is there's such diversity in the church, there's all kinds of classifications of people, but when we come together as one in Christ... Uh, they, would, they would greet one another that removed all classifications of people. It wasn't about the, the rich and the wealthy and the affluent and those who were less affluent, any of that. It was, they were saying, we come together, we, we greet one another as equals, as friends. And so in the church, royalty and those in lower class met together as equals. They're all equal in the sight of God. And then we see the distinction of gender. of uh, the 26 names, there are eight or nine of them are women. Now, we don't know exactly the number because some of the names are kind of unisex, just like we have here, you know, in our day and time. You know, Taylor, Jamie, Alex, you know, those can be, you know, either way, male or female names, depending on what parents name their children. And so Paul lists out these people, and he praises them, But what does he praise them for? Well, let's go on in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone who has heard about your obedience... Um, So I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. If the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And he's being, you know, he's greeting Timothy and, and others. Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden so long ago in ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey to the only wise God be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so as Paul is is writing into this church, um, he, he isn't just because of you know what they have done, or their giftedness, or or their accomplishments, uh, he really is is awestruck by the fact that here was a church who came from all different walks, all different backgrounds, but they unified themselves to be used by God in order to fulfill the commission that we talked about last week that Jesus gave to them to go out and to make disciples. And so one of the characteristics of spiritual maturity, as we've talked about before, is the fact that spiritual maturity isn't just seen in how many verses you have memorized, uh, how many times you serve, all those. It's how well do you get along with other people? Can you, can you maintain unity among diversity? So when we have our vertical relationship with God and we're following that and we're growing in that, and we're deepening our relationship vertically, then it, spills out of our lives horizontally in how we relate and how we treat other people, whether they are believers or unbelievers. And so Romans chapter 12, Paul broke that down into three segments, hey, uh, this is how This is how we respond in our walk with God. This is how we respond in our walk with each other as a community of believers. And here's how we respond to those who are outside the kingdom of God and how we take the gospel to them in a very powerful and effective way. And you'll notice in verse 25, it says, Now to him who is able, circle that word able, he used the same word in chapter 1. Paul is saying is that the same power that saved us The gospel of Jesus Christ is also the same power, the gospel of Christ that grows us and enables us to live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. In other words, sometimes we have this concept that, well, when I got saved, that's kind of where the gospel ends, and now we just kind of pick up from there. No, Paul is showing us all through this book that, yes, we are saved, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the power of the gospel, but it doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning of the journey as we walk through our lives day in and day out. Uh, the end goal isn't just to get you to heaven. The end goal is, is part of the end goal is to conform you, as Paul said, to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans eight twenty nine. And so the way he that God conforms us to Christ is through, again, going deeper in the gospel, in the power of the gospel that enables us to experience change so we can grow in Christ and live for Christ. In other words, just like those in Rome, we are all part of a worldwide movement of God. So here's your first fill in the blank in the top. Ordinary people play an extraordinary role in God's movement. And so this is the list that Paul gives. He's saying, look, there are people from all different stratas of life, ordinary people. But these ordinary people were used by God, whether rich or poor, whether extremely gifted or not so gifted, whatever it might be, they were used by God to change their known world. And God has never forfeited that goal even in our lives. So what I want to do, and we're going to have you flipping through the Bible today, I don't normally do that, I usually just stick right with the text, is that I want to kind of flesh out how this was possible. Why did the early church have such an impact upon Rome? I mean, this is the Roman government, the most powerful government in their known world, and yet God used these individuals to reach those who were hard to reach To reach those outside of the kingdom of God because they did three things and they did it very well, which really describes and fleshes out everything Paul has taught us in the book of Romans. So I'm going to use three words. The first word is abide. Abide, because this speaks of what? Our fellowship between ourselves and Jesus, right? Our relationship with him. Again, this Romans 12 just kind of fleshed that out. So I want you to go to a very important verse Back in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaking in chapter um, 15. John chapter 15, Jesus made a statement that is very, very important to us and very vital in building our relationship with him. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 4, he says, Remain in me, some of your translations will say abide in me, remain in me, and i will remain in you no branch can bear fruit by itself it must remain in the vine neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me i am the vine you're the branches if a man remains in me abides in me and i in him he will bear much fruit and here's the kicker because apart from me you can do what nothing what do you think Paul, what do you think jesus meant by nothing nothing Right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're thinking, well, there's a lot of things I can do apart from Jesus. Not that's going to produce lasting fruit. And that's the whole point here. And so Jesus says, um, only in holding to the vine does the branch produce fruit. So Jesus is the vine. You and I are the branches. What happens if you go to, into a vineyard and you cut the branches away from the vine? It dies, right? It doesn't produce any fruit. And this is what Jesus is giving us a visual of. I'm the vine. This relationship's of the vine. You're the branches. We're attached to this relationship through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've begun this relationship with Jesus. And it's only as I abide, only as I remain in this relationship. In other words, the strength of this relationship will determine whether or not you produce any lasting fruit in life. Because if you, if you skim relationally on this relationship, you're not going to be producing much fruit. Well, what does he mean by fruit? Well, part of that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? So the, the Holy Spirit is, you know, is the sap moving from the vine into the branches, producing the fruit or the character of Christ in us. In other words, I'll not display the character of Jesus any, in any greater way than I stay, remain abiding and attached to the vine. In other words, I can't do this on my own. What did he say you can do by yourself? Nothing. You can't produce this fruit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Greg. It's not the fruit of you. It is the fruit of the Spirit. So let's flesh this out a little bit. In other words, your identity is not in what you do. Your identity is who you are in Christ. Jesus wants to live his life in you and through you, but I have to remain and abide in this relationship. I have to deepen this love walk with Christ day in and day out. So in Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, when Jesus was calling his initial disciples, listen very closely what it says. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Why did he call them? First and foremost, so they could be with him. Jesus didn't call them and then just send them out to preach. He says, I want you to be with me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to abide with me. I want you to remain with me. And I'm going to develop deep in this love relationship. And the natural overflow of this love relationship will be Then you will go out and you will preach. You will share the good news of the gospel of Jesus, right? So so they would be with him. Jesus didn't say their purpose was to live for him or to obey him or to honor him, as important as those things are, or even to please him in some way. He says, first and foremost, I want you to be with me. See, oftentimes we think the Christian life is all about doing. It's all about, you know, okay, I got saved, so the whole goal of the Christian life is to stop sinning, right? That's the whole goal. Uh, I got saved, uh, you know, I gave my life to Jesus, now I'm just going to stop sinning. That's not the whole goal. The whole goal, the primary goal is for you to be with Christ because out of that relationship, everything else flows, everything. And so by preaching, he was saying preaching means to announce publicly or to make public Jesus would accomplish his mission through his disciples out of the overflow of their spending time with him. For three years, they spent time with him. He was building, developing, deepening the love relationship, and out of that relationship, everything else would flow. So you need to understand that being with Jesus is the ultimate pursuit of our lives being with Jesus always comes before doing anything so here's on your outline is the pri- your primary call is not to do something for Jesus your primary call is to be with Jesus that's so so important cuz sometimes we get so caught up in doing for Jesus that now we forget to be with him and we skim relationally in our walk with Christ, thinking that we're doing now the will of the Father. Now, the will of the Father f- foremost is being with Christ, because unless I stay with Christ, abide in him, remain in him, then I will not produce fruit that is lasting, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of you know, sharing my life and my faith with other people. And so abiding is all about Jesus being at the center of our lives because everything flows out of that relationship. Listen, I thought I knew everything there was to know about my wife before we got married. Like, we get married, there's nothing new I'm going to learn. Exactly. A lot of stuff I didn't know about my wife until I spent what? Time with her. Not just like talking on the phone, because you know back in our day we didn't have cell phones and all that kind of. I actually had to, you know, had one hanging on the wall, pick it up and, and dial it, memorize phone numbers. I often wonder what part, what part of my brain is doing now that used to memorize phone numbers, but I don't have to do that anymore. So I learned a lot about her. She learned a lot about me because we spent time together. We were together. in other words, going to work and those kinds of things, yes, but we were together and like remaining and abiding with each other, and so now 45 years later, there's not much surprises me because I pretty much know everything there is to know. So the question is, why don't we spend more time with Jesus? Why don't we? Most of us would feel guilty about how much time we actually spend. If you were to put a timer on how much time you spend actually abiding with Christ, just sitting with Jesus, just learning from him, absorbing him. I mean, this is one of the questions I ask people, and I always get the same answer. What is the most difficult thing for you to consistently practice in your spiritual life? And with almost without failure, people will say, I just can't seem to keep a consistent time with the Lord. I've tried it, you know, I've tried different methods, I've tried different times of the day, and it goes well for a while, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's just not going well, and and it just kind of gets forgotten, and so we jump up, we start our day, we've not really spent much time with the Lord, we're not really abiding in Him, and so it just doesn't go very well. Why is it we struggle so much in this area of our life? Because what Jesus says, this is the most important time in your life that's going to enable you to experience the fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Well, let me give you two reasons. Number one was you have an external enemy, whether you realize it or not. His name is Satan, and Satan uses, who's the prince of power of the air, he is the ruler of this world. He uses the world and and, and himself against you because here's what you know about your enemy. He, He hates everything about God. He hates everything about God's kingdom. And because you are a kingdom citizen and a representative of the kingdom, he hates you. So he knows that your power lies in the ability to remain in Christ, to produce fruit, fruit that is powerful When put in the hands of the Holy Spirit. I mean you think about this love and joy and peace and patience. Whether it's your relationship with your spouse, your children, in church, people outside of the church. There there is power when people eat of the fruit of the Spirit of God from your life. Because fruit is produced not for you but for the sake of others. And it a, sends a very powerful message to those around you, especially those outside the kingdom. So if abiding in Christ is what produces this, then what is Satan's number one goal? To keep you from abiding in Christ, to keep you from spending time in deepening this love relationship. Satan is quite aware of the power of silence. So he's made it his business to monopolize us with three things, <laughs> noise, hurry, and crowds hurry right. is I fill up my calendar with a thousand different things, and then I have no margin of time to spend with the Lord. I just jump up, start my day, and go at it. And so, again, we are skimming relationally. The second enemy is you have is on the inside, which is the Bible terms it as the flesh. This is what Paul calls it in Galatians and various other areas. The flesh is that old redeemed life that you once had. And so the flesh says, this is what I want, this is what I desire, this is what um, I dream of, and what we think is important each day doesn't leave margin in our time, and 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 quite frankly, we just don't see the need. In other words, what our lives really communicate with in our relationship with God and our walk with Him, God is a good option, but He's not necessary unless it's the big things in life, right? If I get hit with something really big like you go to the doctors and find out that you have cancer or that, you know, any other bad thing that might be facing you. Um, We don't really see our time with God as being that important. It is an option, but it's not a necessity unless I am facing some really big things, job loss, Maybe a setback financially, maybe a wayward child, maybe a health issue—all of those things grab our attention, and it's amazing how all of a sudden we dive headfirst into that relationship with Christ because we are facing a crisis in our lives. But when we're not facing a crisis, we have a tendency to skim relationally with God, and we're not biting as quite as much, and we're not depending upon Him as quite as much. And here's. The problem with that is that Jesus said apart from me you and I can do nothing. And he really means nothing. Most people look at that and translate it as apart from me you can do you can't do big things. Sure I need Jesus in my life if I'm really trying to accomplish something big and of eternal significance, but you know on the little things he's an option. On the big things, he's necessary. And Jesus would say, I don't care if it's big, little, or everything in between, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the problem is that Jesus wants to challenge us because here's what I know apart from him, I can't do nothing. So what Jesus is saying, you know what, Greg, every day, you have the power to fail as a husband, you have the power to fail as a father. You have the power to fail as a friend, you have the power to fail as a co-worker, you have the power to fail in all so many areas of your, your life. And Jesus said, the thief, Satan, your outside enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it with more abundance or abundantly. That word abundant means overflow. In other words, uh, spending time alone with him daily is absolute necessity to experience the abundant life that Jesus promised us. But too often, we just don't see the need. So why is that? It's called pride. Pride says, I can do it myself. We're like two-year-olds, three-year-olds. I do myself. I do it myself. I do it myself. It's like your children as they grow up, and become more and more independent from you as a parent. I don't need you. I do it myself. I do it myself. And so... The Bible challenges us to anchor into the Gospels and look at Jesus. How did he live his life? How did he talk to people? How did he deal with situations? How did he deal with difficult personalities in people? And if, here's what you see in the life of Jesus, because he displays it for us. He gives us an example. What did Jesus constantly do? Here's what you read in the Gospels. Early in the morning sometimes midday, always in the evening, sometimes all night long. What did he do? He abided, he remained, he closened that relationship with his heavenly Father. Now Jesus came fully God, but he was also fully human. He was dependent on this relationship, and out of the overflow of that relationship, he was able to do and to accomplish the will of God, the good, perfect, pleasing will of God, Jesus displayed for us the necessity of this abiding in him if the Father's going to accomplish anything through us for his his glory. So my personal ministry or mission statement is I want to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Christ. Because here's what I have observed. I, w- I wasn't raised in the church, and when I got saved, this is what I observed, is that people get saved, and they start their relationship with Christ, and it's like, okay, the goal of my life is to stop sinning, so I'm going to stop sinning, and I'm going I'm to do these things. So we try really hard, right? We, we set out, and we try really hard, and I'm not going to do these things anymore. And, and so somebody gave you probably a list of things you should do and shouldn't do, and I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to be obedient to God and I'm going to walk in obedience to God and that may have worked for a little while but it wasn't long before you found yourself right back into the old same habits the same sin patterns the same thought patterns and you just kept tripping up and failing now you felt like a failure then you were heaped with guilt and shame guilt for what you have done shame for who you were and so Satan is condemning you now in your mind and so rather than walking in freedom, we choose to walk in the realm of trying. I'm going to try really hard to be a really good Christian, and it just doesn't work well. And so what happens over time is you just give up, right? I, I can't do this. I, it's not going to happen. I, you know, I, I try to be consistent in reading my Bible. I try to be consistent in prayer and time with the Lord, and it just doesn't work well for me. And I, I try to be consistent in my life, and but it's just not working well for me anymore. And so the word trying is a tough word because it implies failure, you know. You, you try something. We live in, a, in the realm of trying. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to pay off my debt. I'm, I'm trying to rid myself of certain coping habits and mechanisms in my life. And we hear that word try, try, try. Now, it it has a positive aspect to it, but the negative side outweighs it. And so what happens when people try to live the Christian life and they can't do it, they feel disillusioned, they feel disappointed, they feel depressed because I've tried, 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 and tried some more. I have promised God a thousand times I would never do this again only to find myself right back in the same merry-go-round. Does that sound familiar? It ought to, because this is the way most Christians live their lives. I lived that way for a long, long time. So then we fail, and then Satan just beats us up, and we think to ourselves, I just didn't try hard enough. And we try some more. So let me ask you, um, there's... Here are some of the symptoms of trying really hard to follow Jesus. You believe that spiritual growth and spiritual maturity are something that is earned. It's like if I do really well, it's like I store up money in God's bank account, and if I do something really stupid, then I make a withdrawal. And so I'm always hoping I have more money in the account than I'm withdrawing off the account. And so as a result of that is we, we the second symptom is that we have this constant underlying feeling of guilt. And in order to kind of rid ourselves of that, we get into the comparison mode and say, well, you know what, I may not be doing too well, but at least I'm doing better than so-and-so. In order to try to offload this guilt and shame that we feel in the depth of our, our being. And so many, again, believe that the primary goal is a follower of Jesus is to try to avoid sinning, which is a form of religion. It's nothing but slavery and bondage. So let me ask you a couple of questions. As a follower of Jesus, do you want to sin? Do you? Now, you might like, yeah, I mean, I really, I, there's times I, I just like want to. The, 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 the answer to the question, really the answer, the correct answer is no. You don't. Now, remember, when you got saved, there was still the flesh side of you, right? The old thought patterns, the old sinful patterns that are firmly entrenched inside of you. But what did God give you when you were saved? When God says, when you gave your life to Jesus, you became a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come, right? These are aorist tense verbs, which means it's a past completed action never to be repeated again because it doesn't need to be. Old's gone, the new has come, your new creation in Christ, therefore, watch this, the Spirit of God who lives inside of me never has a desire to sin. And so as I'm abiding in Christ, who is it that's flowing? Who's the sap flowing from the vine into the branch? The Spirit of God. So the Spirit in me does not want to sin, but the flesh side of me, oh yeah, it does. So Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, what? There's this struggle, this battle between am I going to walk in the spirit or am I going to walk in in the flesh? This is important. Well, so that brings me to the second question. Well, does a Christian have to sin? Like if Satan's tempting me, the flesh is tempting me, do I have to sin? The answer to that question is absolutely not. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that your old self has been crucified with Christ. When did that happen? The moment I gave my life to Jesus. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul wrote this. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God who is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but he will provide a way of escape. So what God says is, you don't have to sin. We choose to sin. right? It is a choice that we make. So if you don't want to sin and you don't have to sin, Why do we sin? Why? It's pride. Pride says, God, I need you around for the big things in my life, but for the little things, not so much. So now we start skimming relationally on this relationship with Christ, and so. We live with the mindset, I'm going to try really hard, and if I fail, I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to try harder. And so it becomes this vicious cycle. Uh, we're confronted, we're convicted about our sin, and we, we promise God, I'll try harder, I'll do better the next time. And we have a little bit of success, and then all of a sudden we cave into that temptation once again and now we feel guilt and shame and condemnation. We make bigger promises and I'll try even harder than I did before and it becomes this vicious merry-go-round that we just can't seem to get ourselves off of. The opposite of pride is humility. Humility says I say to Jesus Lord I really want to spend time with you. I really want to deepen this relationship but Lord I can't. I've tried, I have failed, I can't do it. I've tried a thousand times to get this right and I just can't do it on my own. And God says, that's exactly where I want you because when you come with an attitude of humility, all of a sudden the grace of God begins to flood you, overtake you and enables you to build this love relationship that overflows through your life, that enables you to have the grace of God and the presence of God so in your life. In essence, the only way I get off this merry-go-round of sin is that I am so in love with Jesus, that sin is not even tempting me anymore because I'm tapping into my new nature, my identity in Christ, and the Spirit of God is empowering me in order to to not commit that sin. Now, here's the question. Do we ever get to the place in our lives that we will never sin? No. (laughs) This is where we let Satan beat us up. Did the apostle Paul, I mean, this guy was like head and shoulders above me, spiritually speaking. But what did Paul say of himself? And that towards the end of his life... Man, I, I want to do the right things, I, but I find myself doing the very things I don't want to do. It's not a question of sinlessness. It is a question of less and less sin. It's not a question of just, um, wow, I, I will be free from the pull of sin or temptation for the rest of my life. You'll never be free from that pull, but I can walk in greater strides of liberty and freedom as long as I am engaging in this love relationship with Christ to the very core of my being. You get the picture? I can't do this on my own. I, I can't. You know, I, I've shared with you before when I was diagnosed with cancer, one of the things, you know, I, I cried out before the Lord, and I just kept saying, Lord, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I can't do this by myself. And even though I had family and the, you, you as a church surrounding me, and uh, but it's like, it, you know, when the push comes to shove, it's me walking in that valley, and, Lord, I can't do this on my own. And God said, I'm not asking you to do it on your own. You just keep abiding in your walk with Christ, and he will supply every single thing you need. And he was faithful to that promise. This is what God's challenging us with. No doubt we're going to battle every day when it comes to sinning, but the key to victory is not by trying, it's by spending time alone with Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus did? Before he was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do? He spent 40 days praying and fasting between himself and his heavenly father in preparation for the temptation experiences that he was going to be challenged with. Well, the same thing is true with us. I'm just saying, if you skim relationally with Christ, you're going to find yourself less and less victorious in the areas of your lives where Satan keeps taking you down. So here's the principle. A life of humility before Christ always leads to a life of victory. A life of humility is what leads us to a life of victory. This doesn't mean we'll no longer be tempted. Doesn't mean we won't battle against the sinful nature of Victory doesn't mean just deliverance from all of that in our lives. But as we surrender ourselves to Christ, He then, out of the overflow of that relationship, enables us to walk in abundance in victory because we are staying anchored in Him. Here's the second word. is the word connect. And i spent a lot more time on the first one than I am the second and third one, okay? Connect means about our relationship with Christ. In Acts chapter 2, when God birthed the church, there's one thing I want you to see here, Peter preached Christ, he preached the gospel, where 3,000 people gave their life to Jesus, and it says in Acts forty-two, chapter 2, verse 41, those who accepted his message, we baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now here's the key word, is the word added. Right? That word added is in the passive voice, which means that the subject is receiving an action. They're not doing an action. So what, what God is describing is that when people give their life to Christ, that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes place where the Spirit of God baptizes you. We've talked about this before in, in Romans, into the body of Christ. You are in Christ; He is in you. You are baptized into the body of Christ, the universal church, the church of God, the family of God, the kingdom of God. And certainly, then there are local congregations. And somebody comes and receives Christ as their Savior, Lord. And we have you know you come you you go through water baptism, which is a sign and a signal to those who are here that yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I want to take it public. I want everybody to know that I'm an authentic follower of Christ. And so, immediately, what did God do? When those 3,000 people gave their life to Christ, he baptized them through his spirit. Remember, passive voice, somebody outside of them who's doing the baptizing into the body of Christ. They became a part of the family of God. We use the word born again. When a baby is born, normally it's born into a family. When you are born again spiritually, you are birthed into the spiritual family of God. The church, which Jesus said that he would build. And so being a Christian is entirely relational, beginning with our relationship with Christ and also our relationships with each other in the body of Christ. So as Paul was writing letters and others to the churches, it was all very relational. For example, when you read those letters and you see the word you, it's in the plural form. In the south, they would say you all. So everything about the church is about you all, you all collectively together, connected together by a common gospel found in Jesus Christ. And so the reality is because I have a relationship with God, I now have a relationship with God's family. So when you look at the Bible and you read stories about Moses and Abraham and David and Jesus and Peter and Paul, you are literally, those of you who love genealogy, you are literally reading your family's history. Because you are now a part of this family of whom they also are a, a part of. Your status in God's family is not rooted in your performance. It is rooted in your position in Christ. Now, why, why do I say that? Um, because my relationship with God is what enables me to fully enjoy my relationships with others. And so out of this relationship with God overflows the life of Christ in me and through me. But here's what here's the unique thing. God also uses you, we together, in the local church to help us grow in our relationship with God. It's, it's like cyclical. Yes, I grow in my relationship with God and I share with you what God's teaching me, therefore, you benefit from me and your relationship with God, and you also share what God's doing in your heart and your life, what God's doing through your life, and then you encourage me, you help me to grow in my relationship with God, and so collectively, together, we help one another go deeper and deeper in this love relationship with Jesus. Again, I didn't learn some things about myself until I got married. Why? Why? because nobody was close enough to me who could see the flaws and the faults and the failures until I got married. All of a sudden, listen, you don't know what it's like to live on the other side of you, but your spouse does. Your children do. Your really close friends do. And so God uses that like a mirror and it holds it up in front of us like the Word of God and says, Greg, these are, these are your faults and these are your flaws and, and these are your failures. And so God uses that in order to release within me the desire to bring change in my life and in my character. That's why Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 says that we are to spur one another along, means to prod one another along in our spiritual growth. And so your relationship with God is personal, but it was never meant to be private. We need each other. That's why connection is so important, that you connect, large group, yes, worship service, smaller groups, yes, because that's where you do life together. That's where you challenge one another, you encourage one another, you pray for one another, you Enable one another to grow deeper in your walk with God. I thank God for the countless numbers of people through the course of my lifetime whom God has used to help deepen my walk with Him. And that's why it's so important that we be a part of a local church. And then the last word is the word share. It speaks about my relationship with the world. Jesus said this in John seventeen eighteen: As you have sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. Who's the them? We are, right? Christ has sent us into the world. That means evangelism, mission trips, missionary work. Is These activities are not specially designated for the Navy SEALs of the church, right? We all are a part. What did I say from the very beginning? Ordinary people like you and I. God can do extra extraordinary things in us and through us. Why? Because I have the ability? No. Because Christ has the ability and as I deepen that love relationship and walk with Christ and the spirit of God begins flowing in you and through you and he begins developing you, forming and fashioning your mind into the mind of Christ and developing the character of Christ in you and the fruit of the spirit so that you begin to live the life of Christ and therefore God uses you in very powerful ways in order to affect and impact the lives of others. You are one of a kind. But sometimes we, we kind of back off. Everyone is called. You are either a missionary or you're a mission field. Right, if you're a saved believer follower of Jesus Christ, you are his missionary into the world, into your neighborhood, into your school, into your workplace, where you rub shoulders with people. Or you're a mission field. That is, you are outside of the kingdom of God and you are in need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. God has called us all. Revelation 3:15 through 18, Jesus said of the church at Laodicea, Man, you guys have got a lot of things. You got a lot of wealth, you got a lot of things. You don't think you have need of anything. And here's what he said to them. I wish you were either cold in this relationship, or I wish you you were hot. But you're neither one of those. You are lukewarm. What Jesus was saying is that you have become spiritually complacent. You're just like, eh, we're just going to live our lives as best we can and make it through the world. And we've got an eternal home waiting for us as though we have no assignment from the in-between of being born into God's kingdom and entering into his kingdom after we die. We have an assignment. We are to share the love and the life of Jesus. And what does lukewarm Christians look like today? We just kind of go through the motions. And the bottom line is not where others are outside of the kingdom. The bottom line in life is what's most comfortable for me. This is why the health wealth gospel is one of the most notorious, you know, gospel presentations ever. Like God's just all about making your life comfortable, healthy and, you know, giving you everything you want and your desire and you please. That was never God's intention. Pray tell the number of people in the In the New Testament, who gave up their lives for the sake of the gospel or the number of missionaries in our day and time, You know, martyrdom is higher in our day and time than it was in the early church. People are being martyred all over the world. It's not about a life of comfort. It is about a life of humility and surrender. So Paul takes us back to Romans 12.1. Are you willing to lay your body on the altar as a living sacrifice to God? That you would walk in his holy, pleasing will for your life. And the only way I'm going to understand what that is and how I'm walking in it is if I am going deeper and deeper in this love relationship with Christ. And God accomplishes his, his mission through our lives and through our lips. All right? We have to live the life and speak the word. Again, Romans 10, 12, 14 through 15 says, How then? Can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Again, Jesus was our example. Out of the overflow of his walk with God, this intimate relationship, he allowed God to use him to be on mission for the kingdom of God, which ultimately brought glory to the Heavenly Father. So here's your last two fill-in-the-blanks, and we're done. Your greatest obstacle to the expansion of God's kingdom will be found in your own self-centeredness. See, if I'm self-centered, it's about me. It's still about me. That's the flesh. It's about me. It's about my comfort. It's about my wishes. It's about my desires. If God can fit himself in to, you know, my agenda... And, and, you know, what I want out of life, great. If not, it's an option, but it's not a necessity. But that's not what Jesus taught us. That's not what Paul taught us in the gospel according to the book of Romans. Number two, your relationship to the world is dependent upon your fellowship with Christ. We are a fellowship of people deeply in love with Jesus, enjoying fellowship with one another, and living with our yes on the table in order to join in with our Father as He expands His kingdom. And the way that we do this is by abiding in Christ, connecting in community, and sharing the mission of our Savior. That is our calling. That is our commission because The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Let's bow our heads.